Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to welcome Michelle de Kretzer, twice winner of the Miles Franklin Literary Awards to Books, 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 to talk about her latest novel, Scary Monsters, published by Alan and Unwin. Michelle was born in Sri Lanka and migrated to Australia when she was 14. She spent several years studying and then working in France. Scary Monsters is her sixth novel. Her first, The Rose Grower, was published in 1999. Michelle has won countless literary awards, including the Commonwealth Prize for the Hamilton Case, the 2008 New South Wales Premier's Book of the Year Award, the Christina Stead Prize for Fiction, and the ALS Medal for The Lost Dog, the Miles Franklin Prize in 2013 and the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction for Questions of Travel, which received several other honours as well, and the Miles Franklin Prize again in 2018 for The Life to Come, which also won the Christina Stead for Fiction. And I should say that Michelle is one of a very select group of Australian writers to have won the Miles Franklin Prize. Michelle has worked as a university tutor, an editor and a book reviewer, and she's currently an Honorary Associate of the English Department at the University of Sydney. Michelle, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Oh, thank you, Nicole. Thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Now, I would like you to start by telling us a little bit about each of the two stories. So I should say for those of you who haven't read this book, and we're going to come to to talk about this after you hear an extract from Michelle, All I'll say for now is that there are two stories with two different front covers. Um, Michelle, could you tell us a little bit about Lily's story and then a little bit about Lyle's story? Yes, sure. So both Lily and Lyle are Asian migrants to Australia. Um, Both stories are narrated in the first person by either Lily or Lyle. Uh, In Lily's story, it's set in... Uh, 1980 to 1981, Lily is about 22 years old. And at this point, she's no longer in Australia. She has finished a degree at university and is teaching English in a French high school in the south of France. And there she meets all sorts of people and has various adventures. Lyle is a middle-aged man living um, in outer Melbourne in the near future. And he works for a rather sinister government department called the Department. And in this near future Australia, uh, Islam has been banned. There's a right-wing government um, in place. Uh, Islam has been banned. Uh, migrants fear repatriation and um, the climate um, 
is rapidly deteriorating. So I think I'll leave it at that. Mm. Michelle, could you read a short extract? I think you're going to read one from Lily's story. Yeah, I am. So this is near the beginning of Lily's story, and she's um, just in, in Montpellier teaching English. There were three assistants at the Lycée Jean Moulin, Felipe, Dieter, and me. Like hundreds of other foreigners, we were employed by the French government to help with the teaching of our native tongues. Dita and I had contracts that ran from September 1980 to the end of the following May, but Felipe had been an assistant for longer than I'd been alive. In the last weeks of the Spanish Civil War, age 17, he'd fled over the Pyrenees to France. Fascists, finding him gone, threw his sister down a well. Felipe could be observed in the staff room drinking sour machine coffee with other old men. I was told that he had seven children. Someone else had five. The truth could have been one or none. Wanton procreation was expected of the Spanish, entrenched in French opinion as a backward, priest-ridden race. The lycée put me up in its boarding house the first few weeks of teaching while I looked for somewhere to live. In accordance with the instructions I'd received in Sydney, I'd arrived in Montpellier a week into September. French students had snapped up all the cheap furnished places by then. At the tourist office, the clerk in charge of rules couldn't believe it. Turning up after classes had resumed and expecting to find accommodation. He placed his palms on the counter and leaned forward to assess me tossing up whether to despise a foreigner or take pity on a fool. So, Michelle, let's just do a quick recap. Two stories. The first is Lily's story, set in 1980 to 1981 in the south of France. Lily's 22. The second story is about Lyle, works for the department and set in a near-future Australia. Both of them are immigrants to Australia from Asian families from unnamed countries. So let's start by talking about the form of the novel. There's no clues for the reader about which order to read them in. So, listeners, you pick up this book. There are two beautiful covers and you literally physically turn it upside down to read, to start with one story or the other. There's no guidance as to which story to start with. And it seems to me that's a little disorienting and a little unsettling for the reader and it certainly upends expectations. And... I know because I've heard you talk about this that that's a very deliberate choice because the topic of your book is migration, which, of course, is a totally disorienting experience. Would you like to talk a little bit about that and about your choice of the form or structure of this novel? Yes, thank you. So um, as you said so beautifully, um, it's disorienting for the reader to get to the end of either Lyle or Lily, depending on which narrative they've begun with, and then have to flip the book over to start again and to find themselves in the middle of a different story. And so that was my intention, to try to convey to the reader on a very sort of micro level the the disorientation and bewilderment um, that comes with migration when you find yourself in the middle of a different story. Um, 
So that was the main driver linking the content of the book to the format of the book, the form of the book, because um, I really wanted the form of the book to embody the meaning of the book. But there's another reason as well, and that is linked to what I wanted to do with the novel as a form in itself. So when we think of a novel, we think of a continuous narrative, don't we? Um, and this is an idea that in my last couple of novels too, I've been sort of moving a little, little bit away from, especially with the last one where I had five discrete sections, five uh, narratives. Um, but there was a character who appeared in each one of those five. So I did have a linking character. And with this book, I thought I am really going to get rid of that. I am going to say, here is a novel that is a discontinuous narrative. So these two narratives, one is set in the past, one is set in the future, one is set in France, one is set in Australia, one's narrated by a man, one's narrated by a woman. Um, they are both Asian migrants, as we've mentioned. So there are those kinds of links, but there are many um, non-links, let's say, many, many disconnections. Um, and more than even the question of narrative content, I was keen to make sure that there was a discontinuity of style and tone and voice. So the, the way that Lily reads is very different from the way that Lyle reads. Um, one is um, basically a realist narrative that borrows a little bit from the thriller genre because I'm interested in playing with genre within literary fiction. One is uh, basically uh, speculative, but with satiric elements. Um, and so the, the voices of these two narrators are very different because they're completely different kinds of people. So I had to find different voices. Um, Lily is, is an intellectual. Uh, she's a literary person. So her voice is very different from Lyle's, who strives above all to be ordinary. So, you know, it's a bit of a challenge to find an ordinary voice that is nevertheless an interesting voice for the mm. reader. Um, so, yeah. Um, so in terms of both the subject matter, the disorientation that comes with the, the flip format, um, that, that reflects the subject matter, but also... I was trying to push the novel form a little mm. bit and um, quite a lot, actually. Um, so it is a sort of challenge um, for the reader or I prefer to think of it actually as an invitation to the reader to see this as a whole and to make their own kind of connections between the two narratives. I'm glad that you mentioned your previous two novels. I was I was going to ask about those. So for questions of travel, 
we have two main protagonists whose stories are told in tandem for the life to come, as you say. It's a collection of interconnected stories. And you said something really interesting about those two, and I'm wondering how it applies to this one. You said about those two, they're both novels about the contemporary world, and that's a world in which many, if not all, of the old certainties and continuities have been ruptured. The broken form of the, those novels reflects widespread psychological, social and historical rupture. Is it that the same way that you feel about this one, that the ruptured form is a reflection of our increasingly ruptured world? Yes, it is. Thank you for reminding me of what I said. <laughs> um, I do. I do feel that. Um, uh, these are also uh, narratives in which there's quite a lot of violence, you know, uh, mostly aimed at women. And so the. Um, the ruptured form was also a sort of reflection of that violence, you know, doing violence to the novel as a form. Mm. Um, mm. Form yeah. reflecting content again. Form reflecting content. Um, and, yeah, really just trying to, um, you know, I, really just trying to see how much connective tissue you can take out of a novel and still have it be a novel. Mm. Um, there is a little, little hmm, possible narrative bridge between the two, um, which some readers notice and others don't, and other and some, even if they notice it, are not sure whether it is a bridge. And I wanted that to be deliberately uh, ambiguous because I think I want readers to make up their own minds. And we're not going to mention that bridge, uh, needless we're not to say. No, <laughs> needless to say. No so spoilers. I want, just want to start by asking you a little bit about the main protagonist of each story, and then sure. I want to move to some of the common themes between, we shouldn't really call them two stories, between the two parts of the novel is a better way for yeah. me to express it. So let's start by talking about Lily. She's 22 she migrated to Australia when she was 14 from an Asian country and then she's now migrated to, well, not migrated, she's at the moment living in Montel Montpellier. What more do we know about Lily? Who is she? What's she like as a person? So Lily um, is, I think, um, a young woman who is on the brink of discovering who she's going to be and what her life is going to be like. And I really wanted to capture that moment when you're on the threshold of real adulthood, you know, all the safety of study is behind you and you are wondering what your life will be and who you will be as a person. Um, and it's, it's an exciting moment and also a scary moment, I think. And beyond that, I wanted to try in Lily's narrative to express, you know, the kind of energy and um, joyfulness and silliness of being young. You know, those wonderful discoveries, those wonderful conversations, those intense friendships. Um, and and for Lily also, of course, reflecting on being Aust 
Australian ostensibly because she has an Australian passport, but she hasn't actually lived in Australia for that long. And now she's displaced again in France. So there she is representing Australia, but feeling that she might be out of place a little bit in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, I came to Australia in 1972. Lily, I think, has come a couple of years later, but um, at a similar age. At a similar age, and something that's um, difficult to convey to to people, younger people these days, is how few South Asians there were in Australia at that time, because the White Australia policy had only ended Mm. very recently, Mm. very very recently. So there were some East Asians, there were more East Asians because many of them, of course, came from families who'd come here during the 19th century, during the gold rush. Um, so there weren't lots of East Asians, but there were more. And mm. South Asians, really few and far between. So Lily, and of course, Africans or, you know, um, people from the Caribbean or so on, just really. You never saw people from those parts of the world, you know. And then uh, Lily is transplanted to France in the same way then, that you were, of course. So yeah. she, I mean, we'll come to talk a little bit later, obviously, about migration and racism and those sure. are the big issues. But Lily is, I suppose, as you were when you were in France, in effect, the word I used was a, a double migrant, really. Yes, yes. And it was important to me to actually um, show that experience because I think that in Australian fiction, um, Mostly, when there, when an, uh, an Asian migrant is represented, an Asian character, um, they're either living in Australia as a migrant, or, um, or maybe as someone who's you know been born here, but they're in Australia, or we might see them back in their homeland you know, either visiting for the first time or going back home on a sort of, you know, discover my roots journey. Um, we really don't see Asians in Europe, Asian Australians in Europe. And I thought it was important for the representation of Asian characters, broaden it, broaden the mm. uh, image repertoire, if you mm. like, and um, also show uh an Asian migrant who is a cosmopolitan person. So, you know, she's travelled to France. While she's in France, she also travels to Spain and she travels to Italy. She's got an um, honours degree in, in, in French. French. She's very well read, certainly, and she's a, yeah. a big fan of Simone de Beauvoir's, who she models right. herself on to some extent. Yes, so that is an important thing about Lee that I forgot to mention, that she... Um, She's um, studied Simone de Beauvoir and she she would like to be like Simone de Beauvoir, you know, an intellectual, a philosopher, mm. um, and someone who's led an adventurous life, um, mm. a daring life. So she calls, you know, she says, I'd like to be a bold, intelligent woman like Simone de Beauvoir. And that's really interesting. Let's return to that when we come later in the conversation, which we will, to misogyny and the... the, oh. the uh, constant fear of male violence. Let's go now to talk about the main protagonist in the other part of the novel, Lyle. Who's he? What's he like? What do we know about him? 
Okay, so Lyle is um, he's middle aged, so we assume he's been in Australia for maybe 20, 20, 25 years. He's got two grown up children who are in their 20s. Um, he lives with his wife and with his um, elderly mother. Uh, and Lyle has, I suppose you would say he has internalised racism to the point where he just wants to pass as what he calls an ordinary Australian, by which he means a white Australian, mm. basically. So he is above all concerned not to be, not to stand out because he can't help standing out, you know, by nature of his ethnicity. So in and every his other skin colour specifically. His skin colour specifically. So in every other way, he would like to pass under the radar. So the way that he and his wife have worked out that they, this is the, you know, the best way to do this is to take on what they see as Australian values. Mm. And what I hope um, is clear is that the Australian values that Lyle takes on are values that are not stated, but by which our society functions. So, for instance... They're not our most attractive characteristics either. They are spot on. You've nailed it. <laughs> they are certainly not our most attractive characteristics. Absolutely. Go on. Which is why they are not spoken about. Okay, mm. so instead of you know our much wanted um, egalitarianism, mm. for instance, um, you know this is represented uh, this in in Lyle's world. Um, this has been replaced by a kind of ruthless individualism, where you know it's all for Lyle and his family, but no one else. You give a um, great example. I mean, there's. This, I, I had a list of them. We, we won't go through them, but you give so many great um, satirical examples. The one that springs to my mind as we talk about this is the conversation about private education when Lyle and Chanel, who's that's his wife, when they want to send their children to private schools and they talk about why they want to do that. And Lyle says something like, the great thing about Australia is that they give even more money to private school students than they do to public school students. That's the great thing about Australia. It doesn't discriminate against the rich. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, uh, you know, there is also sort of really fierce consumerism, so um, dedicated consumerism. So, you know, they renovate their house every five years or 10 years. They're obsessed with real estate, which, you know, uh, is, a, is a very Australian uh, preoccupation. And the whole, the whole of Lyle society is, is um, sort of pervaded by things like brand names. So mm. Lyle's wife, for instance, that they've both changed their names, okay, so mm. they no longer have the names they had back home. They've anglicised, we, we assume. So Chanel is obviously, you know, the brand Chanel. But there are people all through the society who are called things like IKEA or Prada or Push. So to suggest that, you know, this is this is the um, externalization of Australia's 
uh, well, the Western worlds, the developed worlds, dependence on capitalism, I suppose, on the way that capitalism um, pervades our societies. Um, I would like to ask you a little bit about the Australia that Lyle lives in, about some of the features, in particular in relation to environmental degradation. But tell us a little bit about this is a near future Australia. We're not sure how far yeah. it is into the future. But I mean, one, one, of the, one of the main features is they've banned Islam. They've just made it illegal. Um, and you can be you can be tossed out. Anybody that uh, practices Islam can be tossed out of the country. What are some of the other features of this new Australia that is in the not too distant future? So any migrant or anyone who has even a grandparent who's a migrant and is convicted of a crime, and there are very many crimes, new kinds of crimes that you can be convicted for in this society, protesting against the wrong things, for instance. Anyone can be repatriated. It means that you're sent back to the country that either you came from or your parents came from or your grandparents came from. So it's a way of keeping people very obedient, very compliant, because people are so afraid of this. And particularly, as one of your characters makes the point, of silencing dissent by migrants, because I think the point is made that 75% of Australians have at least one grandparent who was an immigrant. So if you impose that on all of them, it's a very effective way of stifling dissent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, What's the environment like, Michelle? The environment is falling apart. This is one reason why I set it in the sort of fairly near future because I thought if I set it in the far future, there's a chance that the whole uh, planet has collapsed. Mm, I'll set it in the near future. So it's sort of what we have now but taken to its extremes and the government has what they call the climate no policy. And we just see things like they, the characters are using higher and higher UV factor sunscreen and they, um, you know, the temperature in, it's set in Melbourne and in summer it can be 53 degrees. Trees aren't thriving. A lot of trees have died. It's something really interesting is no one's allowed to talk about this. No and one's allowed to show photographs of it. It's a crime to show photos of, uh, of actual evidence of environmental degradation. Yes, and there is a permanent fire zone that rages somewhere to the north and, uh, you know, and then in summer, you know, new fires can spring up. There are also other major weather events, as they're known, and, for instance, a lot of Sydney has disappeared with headlands falling into the water. And so there are um, people from Sydney and um, elsewhere in Australia who come to Melbourne because they're, they've lost their homes and um, have nowhere else to live. Um, there are also people coming in from the country who are known as Ruros because their towns have run out of water or have been destroyed in floods or bushfires or something. So So it's a fairly grim picture. (laughs) So let's talk now about the common themes in both parts of the novel. The ones that I'm going to focus on, there are others, but the ones I'm going to focus on are migration, racism, misogyny and violence against women. So let's start with migration. There's something really interesting that we have Lily thinking early on in the piece. She's early parts of her family moved from Armenia to Asia and then later descendants moved from Asia to Australia. And Lily doesn't see the forces, the 
historical or the political forces that caused those migrations as history or politics. She only sees them as those of the lives of her relatives. And she says it was the beginning of thinking about why some people had history and other people had lives. Could you talk a little bit about that? What's Lily saying here? I think what Lily is saying there is that certain world historical events written about, are shown in movies, are widely known, are world historical because they are reported on, discussed, analysed, represented, I suppose, whereas others are not talked about and um, especially events that affect, let's say, the lives of non-Europeans. So that is what she is starting to reflect on. She thinks about this also in relation to the um, plaques that she sees around the town that commemorate the French resistance and the fighters who died fighting um, the occupying forces of of Nazism. And she thinks about the um, treatment of North Africans in France and she and and the fact that the Algerian civil war is really not talked about there's just silence on that subject and you know she has read a lot about french history and that's just really a subject that is avoided whereas you know there's plenty about the heroic resistance um to nazism during the second world war migrants in both parts of the story, as as you've said, spend a lot of time trying to disappear or at least to make themselves invisible, to make themselves um, to avoid attention. And as you've said, Lyle and Chanel do everything they can to fit in, to assimilate. They, They say at one point that they make a colossal effort renewed every day to be ordinary Australians. Lyle talks about one day when a Danish man starts at the department working with him. And Lyle is really envious of him because he has blonde hair. He looks European. Lyle says he has what every immigrant longs for, invisibility. And then he says, people like us, and that's a phrase that we see recurring through both parts of the novel, people like us, Lyle says, will never be invisible. So we have to make a stupendous effort to fit in. What toll does that take on people, this constantly trying to fit in? to keep a low profile, to avoid drawing attention to yourself? Yeah, well, that's a a really excellent question. Uh, I mean, I think it's interesting to contrast Lily and Lyle in that respect, because Lily at one point, she talks about how when she first came to Australia and for quite a few years afterwards, she felt that she was moving along the edges of her life and it was like a servant flattening herself against the wall in their master's house. And then she says, around the time I went to university, I decided I wasn't going to live like that. I was going to stride out, you know, um, and this is still what she strives for. Doesn't always succeed, but, you know, I want to stride. I want to be like Simone de Beauvoir. So she's trying to do that, to actually rid herself of that cringing, that cringing, that wish to be visible. Yeah. Um, Lyle, of course, is living in a more frightening society than Lily's. Um, 
And he has taken on the values of that society so much that um, he's, he, he really has what we, I think most readers would consider quite a warped moral sense, a warped moral compass. And one of the things that I wanted to do with the Lyle section of the novel was to have almost a kind of flatness to that world, a kind of two-dimensionality, which is kind of risky thing in writing, to suggest the hollowing out of human of humanity mm. and human values. So one of the um, innovations in Lyle's world is something called the amendment, which is a law that's been introduced to amend the current assisted dying laws. And I won't go on to talk about, you know, how what application that might have in Lyle's world, but it it just I think that just the introduction of that law is to me a sign of the you know, taking a law that is a humane law, a wonderful mm. law, and a law that is designed to help people and then amending it in such a way that it encourages and facilitates um, the, the misuse of that by the unscrupulous. Mm. So to me, that just shows the... Um, the wrongness of, of Lyle's world, the hollowness of that yes. world. I want to ask you now about this notion of escaping the past, which recurs yes. quite a lot in both parts of the story, both parts of the novel. There's a lot of references to the past and to history. Just a yeah. couple of quotes that I want to take you to and ask you about. One of them, uh, I think it's Lyle who realises the past crouches and waits and springs from the long grass. Lily at one part of the story, talks about a particular time in her life and says, in those days, I believe the past could be left behind like a country. And then there's just one more quote. Chanel, Lyle's very ambitious wife, tells him that whatever he does, he mustn't look back. They must not look back. They must only look forward. Australia is a modern country that looks to the future, she keeps telling him. I'm wondering my question to you is, do you think that it's possible for immigrants ever to leave the past behind? And what is the cost to them of trying to do that? Yes, excellent questions, both of them. Um, well, look, I will say that the first thing is that, is it possible to leave the past behind completely? I don't think it is. But, you know, when I think of immigration, I think that like all complex human experiences, it has it has different facets. So one thing that happens when you move um, countries, and especially if you move um, cultures, mm. I would say, you know, from, an, say, a non-Anglophone culture to an Anglophone one, um, one of the things that happens is that you have a loss of continuity with the past, you have a loss of community. Um, on the other hand, what you do have, especially if you are young, like Lily, is the opportunity to reinvent yourself. Okay, so the the loss is communal, I suppose. Um, 
but the potential gain is individual. You and they're not inconsistent, it. are they? Mm. Absolutely not. Because, you know, to have the opportunity to no longer do things as your parents and grandparents did can be a really wonderful and liberating thing, really wonderful. Or it can be a really um, punishing kind of thing, especially if you're older, you know, and you really don't want to reinvent yourself or have the opportunities to reinvent yourself. So I would say that to some extent, you know, can you can you entirely leave the past behind? I don't think you can, but some people will try in a positive way and in Lyle's society because he is so um, afraid and Chanel is so afraid of drawing attention to themselves as relatively recent migrants, you know, first-generation migrants, let's say, it becomes important to them to, to only look forward which is another thing they see Australia doing, right? That not valuing our history, wanting to leave it behind um, because we're ashamed of it so often. And you make that point at one point when you talk about Aboriginal history and you talk about, well, Australians don't want to be reminded about Aborigines because, you know, who wants to be reminded of past mistakes? So I yeah. think that's what you're referring to here, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Michelle, yeah. there's a really heartbreaking I thought, line that you give to Lyle, uh, where he describes when he thinks he becomes a modern man. He says it's when he realises that the past was no longer a reliable guide to the future. Yeah. I found that a really devastating line and I wondered, is that ultimately the knowledge, I'm going to make myself cry now, is that ultimately the knowledge that all migrants have to grapple with that from here on in they're going to have to deal with constant uncertainty and dislocation and the past is no longer a guide to what the future will be. Oh, Nicole, you've gone to the heart of things with that. Thank you. Um, Well, it is because, you know, when you migrate, your way of apprehending the world, of understanding and perceiving the world, necessarily has to change. So everything you've learned might or might not be a reliable guide to how you will operate in your new homeland. And also how you are perceived is also is also different now. Um, so the way you were the way you once belonged in the world is no longer the way you belong in the world. This is a line, I'm so pleased you picked this out, because not only does this line pertain to the content of the book, it also pertains to the form of the book. So, you know, no matter which bit of the the novel you read first, it is not necessarily a guide to what you will find, to to, to help you through what comes next. Um, And I thought the designer of this book did a very clever thing with the cover because she's got, you know, a blossom on one cover and a cherry on the other. And, of course, we think of blossom as preceding fruit. But she put the blossom on the cover that has the future, the the Lyle section, which is set in the future, and the cherry 
on the past. So it kind of, again, plays and offends with our notion of which comes first, the future or the past, and the past not being a guide to the future. That was clever. Let's talk now about racism. And you talk about or you write about two types of racism, it seems to me, overt racism and casual racism. So let's start with overt racism. Lily is, as we've said, I mean, I I call her a a double migrant for want of a better expression. She came from Asia to Australia at the age of 13 and then she went from Australia to France in 1980 when she's, I think she's now 22. And at one point she asks herself rhetorically, where was I from? She's not sure whether she's from Australia or from Asia. Mm. Is that, I think we've probably touched on that earlier when you said that you wanted to portray that as as a, a different perspective of the migrant experience, in effect, the experience of someone who's migrated twice. Yes, yes, and specifically to Europe, to mm. a, a different white society mm. and, you know, one which is um, seen as being an older civilization than Australia, as, of course, it's not older than the continent uh, at all, um, but it's older than modern, uh, the modern nation. Um, so, you know, she's sort of in this historical um, context, I suppose. And, yeah, just that idea of the migrant as cosmopolitan and um, sophisticated, I suppose. Lily yeah. witnesses in France in the 1980s many instances of overt racism, usually directed, at least in your novel, against people from the north of Africa. How does it make her feel when she witnesses acts of uh, racism against these other people? Well, she feels solidarity with the North African migrants um, whom she sees, um, you know, picked on by the police and asked to produce identity papers, for instance, um, whereas white people aren't stopped in the street. Um, And she herself is stopped because she is not white, but when she produces an Australian passport, she's waved on. That's of no interest to them. Um, There's another instance, isn't there, when she's with her friend Minna uh, at the markets. Minna's white, an English woman. And um, Lily's asked to produce her identification papers. Minna never is. No, exactly, exactly. So she feels anger at that and she feels solidarity with them. And she realises really how deficient her formal education has been because through all those years of study at university, of reading French novels and studying French history, she was never really um, aware of this kind of conflict and and of France's role in Algeria. Um, She thinks, for instance, of reading Camus' famous novel, L'étranger, which I think, I'm not sure these days, I think it's called The Stranger in English. It used to be The Outsider. Anyway, which is, of course, famously about a white, a, a French, a white Frenchman who is, you know, an Algerian-born colonist who one day on the beach kills an Arab. And he's tried for this and he is actually condemned to death. But as the novel makes clear, he's not actually condemned for the crime he commits. He, he's condemned because his mother has died recently and he's, a, he's been observed not crying at her funeral. And so the real crime is that he's a kind of outsider to, to social convention. 
the Arab is never named, mm. the white Frenchman is. That's very interesting. I was going to ask you about that's really interesting, Lily's analysis of that, which she calls the great, you know, French post-war novel. Why had I never realised before, really, how inherently racist it was that this Arab is never actually named um, and that we feel more sympathy for the Frenchman who's executed for committing a murder than we do for the victim of the murder? Absolutely. All our sympathies lie mm. with with Marceau, the, um, the outsider, the stranger. And she, want, she thinks, well, you know, if all around the world people are reading this novel about, you know, the murder of an Arab, what kind of effect would that produce? Mm. Where it's perfectly okay, really, to, to kill this man. And mm. he is a nameless man. Um, so, so in a way, she is, you know, receiving a different kind of education on the ground by being in the one that, you know, supplements her formal education and upturns aspects of it. I'd like um, to ask you now about casual racism. And we see a lot of that in, particularly in Lily's part of the novel. We get glimpses also in Lyle's, but the examples I think that, well, the one that I'm going to pick anyway is more in Lily's part. Um, you've said elsewhere about casual racism in relation to Australia that it doesn't represent everyone, but the phenomenon is more widely spread than is acknowledged. And you've said, which I found really interesting, that casual racism of this sort is the kind most commonly committed by middle-class progressives. And you've talked about how it's those very people who like to virtue signal, I suppose we'd say now, and show how woke and how liberal and how anti-racist they are that can often commit the most egregious forms of, of casual racism. And the example you give here, I think, in Lily's part of the story is Minna, a woman, a white English woman who she becomes very friendly with. And there are a few examples of it, but the most glaring was that at one point Minna leans over and she cuts Lily's hair and she says, you know, so we can see your skin. And she says, your skin's the most beautiful colour. And Lily is onto her immediately and she realises that what Minna's actually doing is congratulating herself for finding Lily's dark skin attractive and patting herself on the back for being so non-racist. I was wondering, do you see casual racism as something that's perhaps even more insidious and more dangerous than overt racism? I don't know if it's more dangerous because I think overt racism can actually endanger lives. So, and, and does endanger lives. So, you know, that's, that's pretty serious. I guess I would see casual racism as something that is often you, you don't even realise that you've been the object of it until it's too late. Whereas mm. with overt racism, you know straight away mm. when you are the object of it, mm. you know. Um, so, I mean, although... Uh, Lily is onto Minas straight away in that little scene you described. Um, there might be others where, well, it's it's often easy to you, you feel uncomfortable, but you're not quite sure what makes you uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and this sometimes happens between between Lila, uh, Lily and Mina uh, as well. You know. Um, and class gets mixed up in it too, that, you know, Minna comes from a very wealthy background, 
which Lillian which she doesn't initially disclose which she doesn't really because you know at the time too um you think about it sort of 1980-81 you know punk is still very sort of influential and people were rich people kind of kept quiet about being rich you know then the 80s comes along in the 90s and it's all about the explosion of you know it's a patchy years it's all about you know unashamed wealth it's gotten gecko isn't it you know master of the universe and so on that's another really rich strand of lily's story that relationship that i would say troubled relationship with mina yeah. one of the interesting aspects there is that when lily does find out how wealthy meant that Mina comes from a very wealthy family. She learns that from Mina's boyfriend, Nick. Um, Lily's slightly distrustful of Mina after that because she hasn't disclosed that. Michelle, let's talk now about misogyny and male violence against women. Again, more prevalent, I suppose, in Lily's part of the novel. Lily is always conscious of the threat of violence from men. The context in which She's feeling this threat and this fear as the Yorkshire Ripper is at large in England. I think he's murdered more than 13 women and Lily's reading about that in France. There's a famous French philosopher who, while she's there in France, strangles to death his wife of 30 years and then pleads insanity and manages to escape prison. Lily hears terrible stories, graphic, brutal stories of how French men tortured and raped Algerian women during the war. I wanted to ask you, what is the impact on Lily of the cumulative impact of all of these instances of male violence, of hearing about male violence and being told about male violence? What's the impact on her? Well, it does make her more fearful in her daily life. Um, So she starts to become very fearful of a neighbour, for instance, um, who lives in her apartment uh, in in the same um, apartment house as hers um, and she becomes fearful when she is walking alone at night and and yet Lily she kind of determines that she will fight that that she won't give into it because you know she's she's Simone de Beauvoir and she's going to to nothing's going to stop her going to the cinema later and, and having to walk home late at night. Um, and she does, but she is frightened while she's doing it. Uh, and I think this is something women live with a lot, you know. Um, the other thing I wanted to suggest, especially in the Lily part of the book, although not exclusively, is the kind of intersection of things like racism and misogyny. So as you were saying earlier, Nicole, when Lily sees the North African migrants who are mostly male because um, they have come over to work in France and their families haven't been allowed to come to France with them. She feels very, um, you know, she feels solidarity with them when she sees them being, being picked on by the authorities. But on the other hand, when she is sitting in a park by herself enjoying, you know, a fine afternoon and one of these migrant men comes and sits beside her and tries to engage her in conversation and wants to her to have a drink with him and kind of hassles her basically harasses her well then she she what is uppermost in the mind in her mind is that i am a woman and i'm not being allowed to 
enjoy public space freely. So I wanted to suggest the way that, you know, power shifts, power shifts. And sometimes those North African men are on the, um, on the losing side of, of power. And other times they're on the powerful side of power mm. and they're exercising this over, over, you know, the women they meet for reasons that we can understand because they are lonely just as Lily is lonely. Um, but they they make it hard for her to, you know, just um, go about her daily life. Um, so that was one of the things I wanted to do was to show how these these things shift, how sometimes sometimes gender trumps race and sometimes it's the other way around. I was just going to say as you were speaking, I was thinking so people of colour, men and women, are all marginalised to some extent or they they were lower down in the power hierarchy. But as between men of colour and women colour, men of colour are probably slightly higher on the ladder than women of colour because as well yeah. as having to deal with the racism, as you say in that example, they also have to deal with the potential threat of violence. Yeah. I want to ask you now about something to do with the writing of your novel, and I wish we could talk about this more. We, I just sure. want to touch on it. You describe, just taking as an example, the apartment that Lily rents in absolutely loving detail. And you also describe the clothing that your characters wear, particularly Minna, who has a flair for the melodramatic, in close detail. I've spoken to other writers on this podcast about the importance of capturing the details. And I wanted to ask you, as a writer, how important is it to you to capture the details like that? what the setting is, what the apartment's like, what the characters are wearing, what they're eating. Oh, it's really important to me. I love that. I, 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 it's one of the great pleasures of writing for me is to find the detail that will be the suggestive one. Um, because as a reader, I, I love to be able to visualise what um, a character, um, where a character is living or what, they might look like and so I hope to give my own readers that pleasure and I think it just makes it all sort of much more specific and real mm. for the reader I mean realism is the accumulation of detail there's no mm. no question about that but I do it also because I just enjoy it really I read that you loved dolls' houses when you were a little girl. Yes. You loved oh, furnishing well, dolls' houses and putting postage—putting <laughs> postage stamps on walls as pictures. And uh, yeah, I read that you said that this is almost what you do in your fiction by creating these very detailed, uh, actual residential settings. It's like building your dolls' houses again. Yeah, absolutely. I I just relish it. And as for clothes, well, I mean, they're such a such an important um, sort of key to to how someone wants to project themselves in the world aren't they yes. you know how someone wishes to be seen so Minna you know is a very flamboyant character and Lyle is the opposite right he his daughter tells him that if he stood next to a filing cabinet he'd be invisible because he wears these clothes that are he wears a suit to work and it's it's always grey or sort of mud-coloured or beige or something, you know. It's um, 
And that's so deliberate. Good. That's all part of the fitting in process. It's all part of the fitting in. So really trying not to draw attention to himself. He's completely, he's the, uh, he's, he and Minna are antithetical in that respect. Uh, but Minna has no reason really not to fit in because, um, I mean, to, to fit in, it's not, not a value for her. No. But I like Minna too, you yes. know. I, yes. Um, and I can see why, you know, Lily and she are friends. Yes. And, um, the chocolates and just, the magazines and the yeah, and the all listening to all that music and yeah. you know dancing around together and doing silly, you know, going into the photo booths and taking photos of themselves. Yeah, all the kinds of fun you have when you're young. So there's one more detail I want to ask you about. I couldn't help but notice that the colour red is a recurring motif through Lily's story. There's a lot of talk about red fruit, about strawberries and winter strawberries yeah. and summer strawberries and raspberries. There's paintings that Minna does that have got slashes of red through them. At one point, Minna dyes her hair bright red. And, of course, the, the cover to this part is a beautiful ripe red cherry. I just wondered, is that deliberate? Was there some significance to that um, recurrence of the use of the yes. colour red? Oh, yes, because of the um, the violence and, and specifically the violence um, against women. Um, there's one point when Lily is thinking about the Yorkshire Ripper murders and the most recent. The woman's been stabbed mm. multiple times um, and she says her body would have looked like a red fruit, you know, when, when he'd finished with her. Um, so it was at one point I actually considered calling, uh, very early on, I considered calling the Lily section of the novel, um, the red, just calling it red fruit. Mm. Um, Mm. And, you know, there is just so much violence in this novel from in, in the little bit I read out. There was a woman who's mm. thrown down a well mm. because her brother isn't available to be punished. Mm. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. There is a, a lot of deliberate red in there. Michelle, finally, I wanted to ask you about the last book that you wrote, which was a, a wonderful long, I don't know if you'd call it an essay, on the great Australian writer Shirley Hazard in the Black Ink Writers on Writers series. I have to disclose a bias here. I was introduced to Shirley Hazard in my very early days studying English at Sydney University when it, someone who became one of my dearest friends lent me Transit of Venus and I was just captivated by it. So I devoured your beautiful book about her. You've said something really lovely about Shirley Hazard, and this is my final question. I wanted to ask you about it. You said, there are some writers whose books create an environment, an ecology, in which one's own work can grow and flourish. And you said that Shirley Hazard was, was such a writer for you. And I just wondered, what was it about her, in particular her writing, that really resonated and spoke to you in that way? I think one of the things was that I... When I first came to Australia, I hadn't read Australian fiction before I came to Australia. And the, the books that were around in my school, high school library, or um, that I kind of came across in the local library, uh, you know, just sort of, I had no guide to Australian fiction because it wasn't taught in schools. I didn't have sort of access to any. I don't know, forums in which it might be discussed. So it was really haphazard, my reading of Australian fiction. And it tended to be set in the past, 
Uh, and in the bush, something of things like Eleanor Dark's um, The Timeless Land, which I think we were required to read when we were doing Australian history in year eight or something like that. Um, or definitely in the past and and very often, I'm trying to think of the titles now, but they were, I think I started The Tree of Man, which was in the school library. You know, I, I, I never finished it at that stage. You know, I abandoned it. Living in Melbourne, nothing. These books simply didn't seem to have anything to do with the place I was living in, which was a city, an Australian city. And it really, I think it was reading Helen Garner's Monkey Grip, where, you know, there it was set in Melbourne and I could, you know, there were cafes that I knew uh, in, that, in that novel. Um, but Hazard, whom I read, I suppose, a few years after Garner, was this Australian woman who was writing not about Australia, which I sort of thought was, oh, that's exciting. You know, you don't have to write about the place you're from. You can write about anywhere. And she was writing a lot about the experience of young women and young women who were moving across the world. You know, um, they're great travellers, Shelley Hazard's protagonist. So that spoke to me, I think, and my own experience because I had, you know, at that stage, um, been living in France as well, and at just the sort of emotional adventure of being a young woman was something that um, somehow resonated for me, whereas I guess in a way Monkey Grip, which also does the same thing, but perhaps there, I sort of knew people um, like the Ghana characters who were, you know, a good 10, 15 years older than me, and they seemed super cool and kind of scary and living in share houses and, and riding their bicycles. And, you know, I was just a little sort of, you know, I don't know, a little young woman, first year at university, and, you know, their, their world seemed completely closed off to mine because it was a real world and I couldn't kind of enter it. Whereas, you know, when you're reading about characters who, who are like you, but at the same time fictional and mm, it, it just, I don't know, I could enter into the lives of those women in a way that I hadn't been able to enter into the lives of, of characters in Australian books before that mm. and of course there is the sort of the beauty of her writing and the mm. compellingness of her her narratives and the sheer intelligence and the love of poetry and it was so lovely your book came out almost at the same time as that book last at almost the same time last year wasn't it that was the collection of short stories Oh yeah, by Shirley yeah. has it. So I can highly recommend both of those to um, to listeners and readers. Michelle, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been just fantastic talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au 
to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberdy, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.